From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Maggie Vespa in for Laurel Porter this week. And until this week, the largest COVID-19 outbreak in the state had been within Oregon's prisons. Advocates called on the governor to release inmates who were at high risk, but for months, the governor refused. Late last week, we witnessed a pivot on her part. Governor Kate Brown said she would consider letting some inmates leave prison if they met a list of criteria. Things like health, age, time left on their sentences, and the crimes they were convicted of, putting the priority on nonviolent crimes. The DOC said in all, close to 100 inmates qualified under the governor's plan. Then this week, a group of state lawmakers came forward to say that's not enough, and they outlined a plan to release not hundreds, but thousands of inmates. On that topic, we'll hear from Oregon State Senator Michael Dembro, who helped put together that plan. We'll hear from the Oregon Justice Resource Center, which is suing the state on behalf of inmates, and we'll hear from a survivor of abuse. She asked to speak out because she's afraid her abuser will be released, and she believes others are in the same position. Now, later, on a different note, we'll talk about the growing food insecurity among Oregonians during this pandemic and about KGW's partnership with the Safeway Albertsons Nourishing Neighbors program. It's incredible. We're going to hear from a nonprofit that's been able to help families in Portland thanks to those donations. But first, let's start with my conversation about COVID-19 and Oregon's prisons with State Senator Michael Dembro. All right, State Senator Michael Dembro joining me now. Sir, thank you again so much for, for making the time um, and having this conversation because I know things are incredibly busy. Uh, sure. So the, the decompression strategy um, or the decompression plan, as it's been called in the document, um, you all sent that to the governor last week. And for those who aren't familiar, I mean, we'll just start kind of with the surface level. What, what is it? What was the goal here? And what was the message you wanted to send? Sure. So uh, it's, it's a plan to allow us to better deal with COVID in our state prisons. And actually the term decompression is one that came from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, um, as you know, one of their recommendations for um, uh, facilities uh, which include long-term care and nursing homes and you know, other things where COVID is a real challenge. Um, our prisons have a particular challenge, right? Because they really are, um, uh, it's very hard to have social distancing in a prison. And as a result of that, in, soon after the outbreak, our federal system uh, started reducing its prison population. And we saw here in Oregon, a number of counties uh, reduce their jail populations. And it's something that we've talked about for quite a while um, because it's clear that once the disease gets into a prison, it has the potential to just take off. Our Department of Corrections is doing a great job, I have to say, at you know, controlling it, doing everything they can uh, to make sure that, um, that the disease is controlled, that it's being done in a humane way. Uh, and to some extent, they've been successful. They've limited the number of facilities that it's gotten into. But once it's gotten in, it just takes off. We saw that at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Uh, we saw that at Shutter Creek out in Coos Bay. And, uh, you know, as a result, um, over the last 
couple of months, we've seen the numbers of infected adults in custody uh, go up to 174. And in addition, uh, almost 50, actually 49 uh, correction staff have also been infected with the virus. And so it is a real problem. Sure. You said, um, and I want to get to details of the plan in a second, but you just said something I think that's really interesting, that it's very difficult to allow people to socially distance within a prison. Is it even possible? Um, no, I wouldn't say so, especially in uh, prisons that have dormitory kinds of settings, right? People are sleeping in bunks. These are things that we're prohibiting as a state. You know, we're prohibiting overnight camps uh, where uh, kids or adults are going to be sleeping in bunks. Um, but, you know, in our prisons, we don't have, uh, you know, much alternative. And so what we're hoping to do with this decompression plan is exactly what the word says, you know, decompress, sort of uh, reduce the numbers, if we can do it in a safe way, and we believe that we can, uh, and, you know, be in a position where it's going to be easier for staff uh, to, um, you know, to provide more distance, and also if someone is infected, uh, to get them their own space. So the plan... Um by my math, and journalists are not great at math, but it's, a, it's close to 2,000 inmates, roughly, that are encompassed by the three categories. That, that's right, but I wanna, I wanna make it really clear that you know, what this plan does not do is just release all 2,000 immediately, right? It's a very phased kind of approach that would take place over the next three or four months. You know, we're calling for starting with those um, who have serious medical issues that put them at, you know, really serious um, um, risk of the virus. So if they catch the virus, uh, the consequences are really serious. And there we're talking about people uh, who have serious kidney uh, disease or uh, cardiovascular disease or breathing pulmonary disease. Uh, so those would be the first to be looked at, and we would like to see them be released uh, as soon as we possibly can, as soon as that there's housing for them on the outside, and we can be assured that they'll have good medical care on the outside. So that, that's the first group. And actually, that's a group that uh, the governor has uh, agreed to move forward on, and she's working with uh, DOC to identify who would fall into that population. And you just touched on, and I appreciate it, group A, which is that they have served at least half their sentence and they have a grave medical condition. We're going to put up some graphics that show groups B and C, two more sets of criteria that you all have laid out. And it's uh, inmates who are scheduled to be released within four months, and they have a plan for where they'll live. There is housing available. Group C, and we use the term inmates. I know the DO, uh, DOC uses adults in custody or AICs. Yeah. Group C is AICs who are scheduled to be released within six months. They may not have housing lined up now, but basically once they do, that would be the last um, element. And then in theory, again, case by case, but they would then qualify at least under these criteria. Um, and as you so said- again, These are people who have served, you know, virtually all their time, right? They're, you know, within four months, six months. Uh, but if we can, you know, if we can let a few hundred additional AICs out each month, that is going to gradually reduce that, that pressure and, and also put us into a better position when, as we expect, the disease comes back in the fall. Um, 
And uh, that, that is obviously a real concern. So you're working in anticipation. That's the fear is perhaps a second wave. Um, yeah. And, uh, and actually, we're, we are also concerned, frankly, still with this first wave, right? Because as the outside world opens up more and more, that actually paradoxically creates more of a problem for people inside because it makes it easier then for the disease to come in uh, because it'll be, you know, we know that with reopening, we're going to see more cases on the outside. And at some point, uh, you know, we need to restore educational programs, training programs, work programs, uh, and maybe visitation uh, for the adults inside. And it becomes riskier. Uh, so we need to prepare for that. What is your reaction to the governors having received your plan and then moving forward with essentially asking for the names of those who qualify under Group A, but leaving it at that? And that's roughly 100 people. Well, we think it's a really good start, right? And it kind of makes sense, especially as she is doing this on a case-by-case -case basis. She's going to have to review them all. Uh, and so let's, you know, let's take a look at that and see how that group A works. Um, but we do believe that especially group B, um, you know, should be able to be released, you know, very, very soon. Um, because they already have housing. Presumably, we got uh, post-prison supervision lined up. And I guess that's another thing I just want to stress. Um, the individuals who leave are going into uh, the parole system, right? The post, the, the post-prison supervision. It, it's not that they're just being released. Uh, and so, you know, we're optimistic that as long as they have housing and as long as they have uh, community corrections lined up, uh, they, it, it's not going to hurt anyone by having them release, you know, a few months early. Uh, the timing of it, I know I asked you about this a few days ago when this plan was first announced. It did say on, you know, in the first couple paragraphs that the inevitable has now happened in right. these facilities. Um, We've had a death so, in addition. It, yeah. At the same time, there is now a lawsuit from the Oregon Justice Resource Center. Some may be wondering, given that the state was warned and the governor was warned of the inevitable by scientists, just like we've all been warned of likely repercussions of this pandemic. Uh, is it, it's, is it interesting timing that the state waited until there was a lawsuit filed to come forward with this plan and the governor waited until then to ask for the release of 100 inmates? Is the timing um, a repercussion of this lawsuit? Well, you know, the lawsuit actually was filed a couple of months ago, the first lawsuit. And, you know, we just got the ruling last week, I think, where, you know, the judge, or at least, a, you know, a preliminary uh, ruling uh, not deciding not to impose an injunction, uh, you know, where basically she said that, um, you know, the, the proponents had a point, but it was not, this was not a decision for the courts to make. You know, first of all, they said that, that the judge didn't agree that DOC is acting callously and is not taking the welfare of, of uh, the adults in custody into consideration. And I agree with that. I think they are working hard uh, to do it. Um, but uh, the judge felt that this was not her job as a judge uh, to make this decision. This was up to the governor. And uh, I think, uh, so actually, I think the timing was right. 
uh, and it um, made us that much more determined to work with the governor uh, to get her to take action. You know, the other thing that we've seen, you know, obviously, as I've mentioned, we've seen an increasing case count. Uh, so it becomes ever more concerning. We are seeing the outside world open up, as I'd mentioned. And one of the concerns that DOC Director Colette Peters had a couple of months ago was she was concerned about releasing uh, inmates uh, into environments that were not safe, right? Uh, where, you know, at that time, we were still not sure what the hospital capacity would be. We were looking at a potential surge, you know, et cetera. I think we're at a point now where, you know, if we do this gradually, deliberately, uh, carefully, uh, we can do this in a way where the AICs will be safe. You know, the plan, as you know, also has some additional considerations uh, that we want to make sure happen. You know, first of all, we want the kinds of safety measures that the department is taking right now in the prison to continue, and we kind of lay them out. Uh, we also uh, had a couple of things, and, and the governor um, has adopted them in, in her plan, and that is uh, to be very serious about notification of victims and uh, you know, survivors of the offenses that, that the adults who are being released uh, committed. And we want to make sure that, that, you know, there is good, high-quality, best-practice outreach to them. Um, and there are a number of organizations out there who are ready to help us with that, you know, who work with uh, victims. Uh, and, and also, um, you know, there's a whole unit in the Attorney General's, uh, in Department of Justice. Uh, we want to make full use of that. Uh, you know, the, the second thing is we want to make sure there was a little bit of a hiccup a few weeks ago uh, out on the coast where some AICs were released because they had reached the end of their sentences and they were released and they were positive for COVID. We want to make sure that there is, you know, testing of anyone upon release or they've been quarantined for a couple of weeks uh, just so we can be absolutely certain that uh, the uh, uh, communities that people are being released to are kept safe as well. I would just want to stress again that, you know, uh, whenever we talk about uh, prison release, it's obviously a touchy issue. And depending on how it's presented, it can conjure up, uh, you know, images of uh, prison doors opening up and a horde of uh, perpetrators rushing out. And that, I, I just want to assure everyone, that is not at all what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about doing this uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, very carefully, very deliberately, very gradually. But to get us gradually into a place where, you know, by the end of the summer or early fall, uh, it's going to be easier for DOC to manage this population uh, and deal with uh, the effects of COVID, especially if they come back in a big way. All right. Senator, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Maggie. All right. So in response to the legislative proposal, which again would qualify about 2000 inmates for release, as opposed to about 100 under the governor's plan, the governor's office responded with a statement saying the governor appreciated the proposal, but, quote, has no additional plans for other actions at this time. They also pointed to safety measures put into place like extra cleaning and health checks.
And meantime, advocates for inmates are pushing for far more to be considered for release. Alice Lundell with the Oregon Justice Resource Center told me both plans don't go far enough to make anything of a real difference. Uh, when we look at what the governor's suggesting, 100 people is fewer than 1% of the state prison population. So the reality is that while for those individuals, uh, this could be very meaningful if they have the opportunity as medically vulnerable people to leave prison and to be uh, in a position where they're less at risk from COVID-19, it's great for them, but it's really not going to do very much uh, when you're talking at the prison population level. Um, but in the end, uh, we think that we could still go further. So while uh, the proposal that came from legislators is definitely a positive development and something that should be applauded. I think there's still more to do. And for us, we'd want to see something closer to what the Department of Corrections has in the past identified as being the kind of number that needs to be released. So they've talked about maybe closer to about 40% of the prison population. And if we could take further steps towards that number, we think that would be positive. For those who are wondering, there are close to 15,000 people in Oregon's prisons right now. And of course, there are people who feel that releasing any inmates would be too much, too many. Then this plan was just forming. When it was just forming, Trinity Landry, a survivor of abuse, reached out to me. And she wanted to speak out and urge Governor Brown to think of the victims in these cases. Her abuser, and this is important, pleaded down to lesser charges. He's older, he's medically fragile, and she worries that he could be released early. Trinity wasn't up to talking again today, but here's some of our conversation from April where I also had her read some of her open letter to Governor Kate Brown. So every single day he's in there means everything to me because that is what I fought for and it's my justice and it's taken away. I'm not only 18 years old, but I have endured an inordinate amount of trauma for anyone to suffer. I've become stronger as a result of my journey of abuse. A part of that was due to the my abuser being sentenced to prison. We must work together to get Governor Kate Brown to listen to us before she sets this absurd policy into motion. We may only have a week. So it's important to note both the governor's office and Senator Dumbro say under each of their plans, each release would be considered on a case by case basis. And those considerations would include noting when offenders took plea deals. So the Oregon District Attorneys Association, though, has also pushed back against the governor's plan and against any release of inmates. Marriott County District Attorney Paige Clarkson said in a statement, the group has significant public safety concerns, adding, quote, while we appreciate the governor's narrowed criteria and awareness, that it is inappropriate to commute sentences of individuals convicted of violent person crimes. We caution that any releases should not add to the current stressors and burdens faced by all Oregonians. We cannot simply release convicted felons into our neighborhoods without safe housing, support services, and appropriate supervision. All right, coming up next on Straight Talk, we're going to talk about the Nourishing Neighbors program, which is helping our community groups give back here in the Portland area. We're back in two minutes.
Hey everybody, welcome back to Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. I'm Maggie Vespa. And with the pandemic stretching into its fourth month and a historic number of people out of work, more and more need help just putting food on the table. So KGW has partnered with Safeway and Albertsons on the Nourishing Neighbors program, helping organizations across Oregon and Southwest Washington feed their families. And joining us now to talk about the Nourishing Neighbors program are Jill McGinnis with Safeway and Albertsons and Natalie Carlberg with the Boys and Girls Club of Portland. Thank you so much for being here. Jill, we'll start with the figure that really surprised me. $2 million raised since the beginning of April. All of that money stays local. I mean, just your reaction to that figure and, and the types of organizations that we're talking about that are getting the help. Yeah, uh, we've just been so uh, surprised and um, really it's been very heartwarming. Our customers are coming through the check stand and choosing to donate uh, despite everything that they might have going on in their own lives. Um, these dollars are turning right back around in real time and going out to organizations um, in their neighborhood across Oregon and Southwest Washington. So um, that's the Oregon Food Bank. Um, Sunshine Division, Meals on Wheels, United Way, uh, the Salvation Army, Friends of the Children, a lot of school districts. We've been able to help with their meal distribution, backpack programs, and uh, the Boys and Girls Club as well. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. And first, I want to point out what you just said and highlighted. The money goes out in real time. So it's great for people to know they donate and someone's getting help almost immediately. Natalie, with the Boys and Girls Club, can you just you know tell us what it feels like to have this resource available during these tough times? And then uh, just, just the impact these last few months have had on the families that you work with. Of course, um, the impact has been significant. In um, March, when the governor's orders came down, we closed 10 of our club locations um, in order to protect our family, our youth, and our staff. With that being said, a lot of our youth that participate in our programs count on us for the meals. Um, evening meals is mostly when we serve. Um, with that being said, uh, Safeway and the Nourishing Neighbors grant came through for us so it allowed us to pivot in order to continue to feed our youth and our families um and we looked at the numbers and just over 60 days we have served over 50,000 meals and snacks to our youth and families in an overall year we only serve about 157,000 meals so the impact has been significant and we couldn't do it without our partners such as safeway um, and those that give when they're in the store. So it's had a huge impact for our families and our youth, and we don't know what we'd do without our partners. Sure. Jill, was it any effort to get this program up and running to the degree that was needed during this time, and again, to get that money going out in real time? You know, honestly, uh, we did it pretty quickly. It's amazing what you can pull together uh, when everybody decides to get behind it. Um, right away, we uh, knew that we wanted to develop a program that would help uh, local families who were impacted by COVID. And so um, it was a fairly quick process for us to turn the pit pads on and start uh, issuing grants to local organizations. And it, we had no idea it would be such a huge success. Great. I know we have some graphics ready. Would you mind uh, doing the honors and just letting people know both how they can donate and then also if they need help, um, what's the best resource for them to go to right now? 
So how you can donate is every time you're checking out at any Safeway or Albertsons in Oregon and Southwest Washington, just choose uh, to donate right there at the pin pad and you can donate as little as $1. Um, if you're someone that is needing help, you can go to the Albertsons Companies Foundation and we have applications there for organizations um, that are uh, qualifying of the grant application. Okay, awesome. And we have kgw.com slash nourish up on the screen as well, too. So we're just trying to make it as easy as possible during these incredibly stressful times for people to donate and again, to get the help that they need, which people are having to ask for help for the first time. So it's overwhelming and we get that. Jill and Natalie, Safeway and Albertsons and the Boys and Girls Club, thank you both so much for your time. And thank you so much for what you're doing. We, we see the need too, and it's, it's huge. Thank right. you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. One more time, there's the info, kgw.com slash nourish. And again, any checkout stand at any Safeway or Albertsons, you can use the pin pad, give as little as a dollar. Thank you so much for watching and for listening. And don't forget to download our podcast. You can point your phone's camera at the code on your screen. It'll take you to a link to download. There it is. Or you can just search KGW Straight Talk wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.